Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lizelle Wellbeing Show, the podcast that brings you your weekly wellness wisdom that you can trust. Well, thank you as ever for all your feedback about the podcast, but also thank you for letting us know how much you appreciate feeling part of the Lizelle Wellbeing community. And we've had some lovely comments from you recently, including this one on Instagram. Fit Not Fat, that's it, has written, Every day is a school day. I was listening to a Lizard Wellbeing podcast the other day and learned about selenium for thyroid health. Two to four Brazil nuts per day now added to my diet. I added cherries to my yogurt as packed with fibre and chocolate. Well, just because. Full fat Greek yogurt for the breakfast win. Well, thank you very much to Fit Not Fat. That's it for tagging us. I'm very thrilled that you were able to take those great nutritional tips from our podcast and share them on your own social media. It means a lot to me and to my team when you share the advice from our podcast guests because it does help other people to find us too. So they might benefit from the expert help that they also could need. Well, on to today's episode, which is all about something we spend around a third of our lives doing, but very often fail to do well, which can have huge implications for our health and well-being. Of course, we are talking about sleep. Well, my guest today is Dr. Adam Carey, a doctor and a nutritionist who became a specialist in obstetrics and gynaecology. And he left the NHS 24 years ago so that he could have more of a role in the prevention rather than the treatment of poor health. Well, we'll hear more about his extensive experience in the world of nutrition, and in particular sports nutrition, because now he is the Chief Medical Officer at Indie Supplements, alongside Dr. Frederica Amati, who's also been a guest on our podcast. Well, Dr. Adam, welcome. Thank you very much, Jason. Great pleasure to be here. I'm so looking forward to this because, as I said in my intro, you know, a third of our lives asleep. We ought to make it pretty good, don't you think? Absolutely. And I think it's one of the things that in modern society we hugely overlook. Mm. It has huge implications for our short term performance, and our long term health and well-being, both physically and mentally. Now, I said in the intro that you're a nutritionist and we've asked you to come specifically to talk about sleep. So what is the connection then between nutrition and sleep? Okay, that's a great question. So in my behavioural change work, which we've been delivering for over 20 years now, which is really focused on improving human performance and well-being, we've increasingly recognised that what you choose to eat affects how you sleep, but also 
how you sleep affects the choices that we're drawn to and the things we choose to eat. So the relationship is complex and it changes as we age. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, this is hugely important in terms of the health consequences it has if we get this right or if we get it wrong. That's really fascinating. And I'd like to hear a little bit more actually about your background, because you did begin your career, didn't you, with a focus on women's health? Absolutely. So I'm a classically trained, you know, Oxbridge medic. I went up to consultant level in the NHS. My training was in obstetrics and gynaecology with some subspecialist training in reproductive endocrinology and nutrition. And as a student, I was sort of fascinated with the creation of life and I loved embryology. But once qualified, I really started to think that I was more interested in how to help people become healthier and avoid illness as opposed to treating the sick ones. Interestingly, the reason I think why I was drawn to obstetrics and gynaecology is because in that specialty, it's really about supporting normal physiological processes at the time of conception, childbirth or the menopause. And these are not illnesses underlined. They're not illnesses. This is just normal physiology. And it's about optimising outcomes for women at different phases of their life. Mm, really interesting. So your focus is very much on prevention and keeping us well rather than treating people once they become ill. Absolutely. In my clinical practice within the NHS, I was continually seeing the consequences of lifestyle diseases like obesity and high blood pressure and type 2 diabetes played out at infertility clinics, in the antenatal clinic or in the menopause clinic. And I really felt that we were closing the door after the horses bolted. And I believe these things were available. The NHS is actually an acute illness service as opposed to a wellness or a health service, and it treats the problems as they present. And I was interested in working out how we deliver what we now call coach behavioural change and wellness programmes to prevent disease as opposed to allowing it to present itself. I think that's so interesting. So many doctors I talk to go through medical school and they do tell me that they are taught to treat the symptoms of a disease once it presents itself rather than actually treating people to keep them well and preventing those diseases from occurring in the first place. But the NHS was never really set up with this in mind. So the problem we've got in society is actually in the structure and the thoughts around what the NHS was there to do. The NHS was there to pick someone up when they became unwell and put a plaster on them and get them back to work or were doing what they were doing. And it does that incredibly well. If you look at acute services in the NHS, they are superb. And so if you've broken your leg, there is no better place to go. But if you look at chronic diseases, so whether that's high blood pressure or diabetes or mental illness, or these sort of things that are treated in the community not done quite so well mm. and when you think about prevention of those diseases little or no thought but that's not what the NHS was set up to do so one of the misnomers in society is we believe we've got the National Health Service and it's free of the point of delivery so I don't have to worry at all right. about my own health and well-being <laughs> I can just wait until I fall over and then someone's going to pick me up yes. but that's just not the truth and we're now seeing you know in dentistry and health that you know the NHS is falling over as a consequence of this tidal wave of problems which are really manifesting by the way we live our lives as opposed to having de novo medical problems. So it's kind of the National Illness Service. It is. Because it's treating illness and not health. <laughs> Absolutely. But that confusion means that if you think from a personal perspective, you think, well, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to worry about myself because actually if I get sick, there's a doctor and he'll treat me or she'll treat me. And that's mm. all absolutely fine. And that's just proving not to be the case. Yeah. Well, you've had quite a career, haven't you, since actually leaving the NHS? So many different things. Yeah, they've all been focused on the same things, but essentially, yes. And I've been delivering coach behavioural change, I suppose, in three ways. Initially in Harley Street, delivering to London's rich, worried world. And that's where we worked <laughs> out how to deliver these services in a one-on-one -on -one perspective and getting the processes right. And then subsequently took those into elite sport. And I was lucky enough to be part of Sir Clive Woodward's 2003 World Cup winning team. And I've run similar roles for England 
cricket for Nash's success in 2005, Chelsea under Mourinho, the Welsh Rugby Union for their Grand Slams with Warren and the US ski team and Bodie Miller for two of their Olympics and helping him become the most decorated skier in US history. Wow. And that taught us how to do in high-pressured environments for groups of people for sustained periods of time like Olympic cycles or World Cups. But my vision was much more about changing the health of a nation or nations and not those who could just afford to pay or some elite athletes. And so in 2006, we established Core Performance, which delivers coach behavioural change uh, strategies to businesses. And over the last 17 years, that's really what we've been focusing on, delivering to some of the UK's largest businesses like INEOS and BP wow. and RBS. And so we've done this you know, across lots and lots of large organisations. And the programmes cover four areas, everything that you eat and drink, how you move in an incidental and structured fashion, how you sleep and recover, which we're going to talk about a little bit today, and how you feel about those things, your mood and your mindset. And we're able to demonstrate that long-term behavioural change improves health and performance and delivers a measurable return on investment, which is now why organisations are thinking this is not only the right thing to do, but there is actually a business case for doing it. Absolutely. Sometimes I give talks to businesses about wellness and well-being. And I'm asked, you know, what is the best business asset? And I say, well, one of the absolute fundamental business assets is sleep. Because, uh, you know... <laughs> and your people. Yeah, yes, your yeah, people. Exactly. A, making sure your people are well. And then a key part of that is to making sure they're sleeping well. Because if you don't sleep well, you make poor decisions. And if you make poor decisions, then business will suffer. So for me, it's an absolute fundamental. And it's fantastic that you've been taking that, you know, right out from, as you say, the elite athletes from a doctor's perspective so that we can trust the science and we know that it's sound and physiologically robust and then you can actually bring it into everyday lives. Absolutely. So we've chosen to talk about sleep. That's the subject of today's chat and we share the belief obviously that good quality sleep is the cornerstone for well-being alongside nutrition. Where would you suggest we start? What is a good night's sleep when people say, oh, I've had a really good night's sleep or a poor night's sleep? Is it just the number of hours that we sleep? Well, as a good friend of mine used to say, the difference between hope and despair is a good night's sleep. And so, <laughs> so defining what a good night's sleep is, I think, is absolutely critical. And yes, you can start with the number of hours you spent in bed. And most adults need about eight hours of sleep a night. So if you're only getting six, and if you look at the, the studies on UK metropolises, the average is now less than six hours a night. You're really going to struggle. Wow, really? And it's true. It's not just all about the duration. It's about the quality. And so how well did you sleep? How much of that time... Were you in your bed? Were you awake or were you disturbed or feeling anxious? And everyone has brief awakenings from sleep and that's completely normal. The question is, do you manage those well? Are you able to turn over and go back to sleep? So when we think of the structure of sleep, what we know is that sleep has got sort of five stages, four formal stages and REM sleep. So we start off being awake and we go through stage one, stage two, stage three and into deep sleep, which is the stage four sleep. And then we come back out of that through those phases into lighter sleep and then into REM sleep. And REM, or as we know, is rapid eye movement sleep. This is where we dream. So where our bodies are unable to move, but we're dreaming and we see that people's eyes flickering if you look at this. And those cycles last about 90 minutes, though as we get older, they can be reduced a little bit. And it's in the REM sleep, we're really close to consciousness. And if you think about REM sleep, part of what we're doing is we're role-playing, we're thinking through things that have gone on in the day and thinking about, okay, well, this has happened, how might I manage this situation? And some of those things are anxiety-provoking. So if you are worried about something, you're thinking about through it, and then you come to consciousness, often you wake up feeling very worried and very anxious, and then that anxiety stops people going back to sleep. And this is a very common problem. 
and it's been made worse, I think, over the last couple of years. You know, we've had a pandemic where people worried about their own health and the health of their friends and family and so forth. Now we've got a, a war in Ukraine, which is impacting energy prices and so forth and fueling inflation. There is a lot to worry about. Mm. I have heard people say when making decisions or thinking about things, you know, there is that expression, let me sleep on it. Is that because the brain is processing those thoughts so that we might actually wake up potentially with a solution? Absolutely. So I use this and I think it's a really good tool. If you've got a problem or a question you're not too sure of the answer of, taking that, even writing it down before you go to bed, but at least thinking about it, expressing that thing and saying, okay, what should I do about this? You know, there are these three options. What should I do? Right, I'm going to go and sleep on it. And what you will do is your subconscious mind, whilst you're asleep, will role play those scenarios. And people often talk about having a gut reaction. I just felt this was the right thing to do. Well, that was their subconscious mind talking to them. They've gone through this in their sleep. We often don't remember our dreams, but they've gone through this in their sleep and come up with what they then believe from their role play is the right solution. And often people wake up going, right, I know exactly what I should do tomorrow. It should be this. Mm -hmm. And actually, I would really listen to that gut feeling because you will have thought about it quite deeply whilst you've been asleep. That's really interesting. And that's kind of counterintuitive because you would think actually to get a good night's sleep, I need to clear my head and I might just have, you know, an extra glass of wine and just switch off and not think about anything. But actually you're saying that if we have a problem, put it into your mind before you drop off. If you've got a question you're asking yourself, I think that's a really good way of managing it. It depends a little bit, I guess, on people's state of overall anxiety. If you are a very anxious person, then for some people that might add anxiety to their sleep. And they're the ones who wake up, you know, in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, worrying about stuff. So if you're sleeping well, then I think the use of asking yourself those problems is a really good thing to do. If you're already waking up with anxiety or or not sleeping so well, then possibly it's not such a good thing. Mm. I've also heard sleep being described kind of like a filing system for the brain that Mm. that's the time when we take all the processes and activities of the day and file it away so that we can reach them later on if we need to and it's it's kind of like the brain doing a bit of admin if you like it absolutely is and when we go into deep sleep we're laying down memories we're sorting out those things that we want to keep from the things that we don't want to keep and so that's part and parcel of good learning across the day so for students for example if students don't get great sleep they don't learn it remember so well but that happens across the whole of your life and that is exactly that it's that filing process that occurs whilst you're asleep so sleep is absolutely critical for our understanding for our learning for our cognitive function as well as our mood I've got a sleep app which I've been using and that's been quite interesting for me to look at because it shows me the peaks and troughs as I go in and out of deep sleep and this REM. Mm. Do you think that's a useful tool or is this just something that is just going to worry me even more if I don't get those peaks and troughs? (laughs) So I think there's a couple of things to say about it. So we're advised by Professor Stephen Lockley, who's the professor of sleep at Harvard and runs the NASA sleep program. So our programs are advised by him and more recently by Professor Russell Foster. And both of them would say very clearly that the ability to measure your states of sleep off a device that you're going to wear on your wrist, like a Garmin or a Fitbit or something of this nature, Mm. is really, really poor. So what they're quite good at doing is telling you how long you were in bed for and roughly how long you were asleep for. But the phases of sleep that you went through 
with the best one in the world, that's sort of just a toy and it's a bit of a guess. So I absolutely wouldn't get hung up about those things. I would ask yourself some real questions. Yeah. You know, it's no point saying, I had excellent sleep. I was in bed for five hours. I slept really solidly for all of it. If you only slept for five hours, you didn't sleep enough. Right. So knowing how long you're in bed for. So if you think about these 90 minute cycles, five 90 minute cycles is seven and a half hours. And six 90-minute cycles is nine hours. So if we're going to sleep in those blocks roughly, then we're going to sleep somewhere in between seven and nine hours because they're not always 90 minutes. For some people, they're slightly shorter and some people, they can be slightly longer. Mm. But that gives you a sort of a frame of reference around thinking about it. But if you're only actually sleeping for five and a half hours, well, you're just not getting enough. And they're really, really good for saying, am I averagely getting enough sleep? And so if you're averagely over seven and a half hours sleep on one of those apps, I think that's a fantastic piece of data and you should focus on that. I would not focus, oh, I've only got 23 minutes in REM sleep. Because the other question is, if you've only got 23 minutes in REM sleep, what are you going to do about it? None of the sleep professors I know know how to change REM sleep. So it's very difficult to affect those things. So you need to take a measurement you can do something about and you can't do anything about the bits in between, even if you want to, and you can't measure it very well for a wrist monitor. Mm. Can we get too much sleep? I think you can get too much sleep. I think the studies are really quite good. So people who sleep not enough, but also people who sleep too much are at greater risk of obesity. So probably the people who sleep too much or spend too much time in bed don't move enough. That's probably one of the big things associated with their weight gain. And people who sleep too little have sleep disturbances, which cause them to eat poorly. So yes, I think you can sleep too much. You can spend too much of your time lying down. Mm. So you talk about nutrition at the very beginning there, and obviously we're sort of moving on to food and, and food cravings. Does quality of sleep then potentially impact the food choices that we make? Absolutely. So if you've chosen to eat things like refined carbohydrates or eat late before you go to bed or caffeine or alcohol, all of these things that you might choose to eat, which are all pretty normal. You know, I went out for dinner, you know, I had my main meal, then it was followed by a dessert, some ice cream with some chocolate topping on the top, and then I had a coffee afterwards. That's not an uncommon set of evening meals. And that dinner finished at 9.30. And then I went to bed at 10.30. There are lots of problems with that for many, many people, for most of us, I would say. The first is just the time of eating if you eat that late then you'll be digesting as you're trying to go to sleep to go into from phase one to phase two sleep you have to drop your core body temperature by half a degree and to drop your core body temperature by half a degree you have to get rid of heat well if you're building heat in your body because of digestion that's not going to be very useful the second bit was then refined carbohydrates so if you eat lots of sugar before you go to bed you'll digest that sugar and you'll have a, a sugar rush from that that tends to be a stimulus and it tends to stimulate people again stopping and going to sleep but also they have what's called a hyperglycemic, a low blood sugar event that occurs about two or three hours afterwards. And often people will wake up in the middle of the night feeling a bit sweaty. And this is caused because they're having a low blood sugar and it's, it's actually causing them to wake them from sleep. Mm. Caffeine, I think many people will recognise that caffeine affects their sleep. A lot of people say, oh, I'm completely immune to caffeine. No one is immune to caffeine, but really? there are slow and fast caffeine metabolizers. So if you're a fast caffeine metabolizer, you may be able to digest your caffeine very quickly. And the half-life of coffee for you may be in an hour and a half or two hours. But if you're a slow caffeine metabolizer, it could be seven or eight hours. And that means that if you've had a double espresso, even at seven o'clock in the evening, that actually you're going to still be having the equivalent of a single espresso in your system at one o'clock in the morning. And that's going to definitely impede your sleep. And I think the last of those is alcohol. And lots of people 
I think, well, you know, I've had a really stressful day. I want to come home, have a glass of wine, chill out, relax and so forth. And that's going to be great. And I think it's actually about quantity rather than do you do this at all? Because if you have a glass and a glass is meant to be defined as 125 mils, which to most people looks like a thimble. But if you have (laughs) a glass of wine, then it's going to take you about an hour or so to metabolize that wine. So if you had your glass of wine, say, eight o'clock with your evening meal Mm. then by nine o'clock or 9 30 most of the alcohol will have been gone and then it won't impede your sleep but if you've had a bottle of wine you're going to be metabolizing alcohol for most of the night and that's going to stop you going into your deep sleep and that the deep sleep is when we do our physical restoration that's the big part of what we do in the first half of the night in the first cycles is a lot of deep sleep a lot of physical restoration and some memory lay down but in the second half to light we do our psychological restoration so that's why people even though they said, well, I drank a bottle of wine, I went to sleep like a light bulb, I was completely out, but I woke up in the morning, eight hours later, and I felt shattered and exhausted. Well, you felt shattered and exhausted because you hadn't done all the things you were meant to do whilst you are sleeping. And so you wake up then feeling very tired. And of course, when you feel very tired, then you have cravings and you're craving mm. for all sorts of foods that possibly you shouldn't be eating. So at what point would you say then we should stop eating before we go to bed? Is it like a two hour window before we hit the pillow? I think most of us would agree three hours. Really? You need three hours to allow yourself to digest things. That's why you should all come and live in Yorkshire because Yorkshire tea is at five o'clock. And so (laughs) we have tea at five o'clock in Yorkshire and everyone laughs. But then obviously by nine or ten o'clock, you've digested all your food. And particularly if you've gone for a little stroll after dinner and so forth and walked the dog, then everything's absolutely fine. Two hours, you're sort of at the absolute limit of being able to digest. And it depends on what you had to eat. If your evening meal is a relatively light snack, some fish and some vegetables you'll probably digest that in a couple of hours. If you've had a heavy evening meal, Mm. that might take you four hours or five hours to digest. And so you're still going to be in the middle of that digestive process when you go to sleep. Playing devil's advocate here, if that does happen, would you be better off delaying going to bed, potter about and do some things and then think I'm going to go to bed at midnight and just get up a little bit later so the quality of my sleep is better? Now you're talking about the impact of what we call social jet lag. So the first thing is that can you step a little bit later? Some people find when they get tired, they get tired. They feel like they want to go to sleep, even though they're digesting stuff. And so their sleep is not as good. So you could try and stay up a little bit later. But the problem with that is then you have to look about the following day. And we see this a lot in children, don't we? Mm-hmm. Where children like to stay up a little bit too late. And we always think that they're, they're naughty and then they're lazy the next day because <laughs> the buggers won't get out of bed and they need to go to school. So you can induce social jet lag by actually pushing your bedtime a little bit later but then you need to make sure that you get up later but the question is then the following day Mm. is that really what you want do you then need to pull it back and so we can manage one night of poor sleep we can manage really quite well what we can't manage is repetitive nights of poor sleep Mm. and before we move on from food cheese i've heard that eating cheese just before bed will give us nightmares true or false So I think if you eat cheese at 5.30 with your evening meal, it has absolutely no problems whatsoever. And also in our clinical practice, we see that whilst people do talk a little bit about cheese, we find people who drink tea have a much, much bigger problem with nightmares than people who eat cheese. But if you're eating your cheese three hours before you go to bed, it will not have any impact at all. So why would a last cup of tea potentially give you nightmares? We don't know. There's not great research on that, but it is definitely a thing. We, we find lots and lots of people complain because they have a cup of tea in the evening. And we say, move from your black caffeinated tea. Maybe for some of them it's the caffeine, but move from your caffeinated tea, move to a herbal tea. And that seems to get rid of the problem for them. 
fascinating stuff. But we're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we will be hearing Dr Adam's advice on what we can do to get the best possible sleep and what a difference that can actually make on how we feel. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, welcome back. And I would like to move the conversation now on to how sleep patterns change as we age. I think the life cycle of sleep is fascinating when you think about it from babies who seem to be permanently asleep, hopefully, although not usually at the right times of day, through to teenagers, anybody who's got those teens at home at the moment trying to winkle them out of bed or trying to get them to bed in the first place is a tricky one, through to adulthood and eventually old age, when again, we do tend to get lots of sleep disturbances. So Adam, sleep as we change, as we age, what's the story here? Sleep changes dramatically as we age. As you said, as we see babies, they tend to be asleep most of the time. And if you look at babies in the womb, it's about 95% of the time in the womb that they're asleep. Really? From birth, their circadian rhythms start to gradually click into place in the first 12 weeks. And as they're establishing their sleep-wake cycles, their sleep decreases from about 16 to 17 hours in the first three months to about 15 hours. And then babies gradually over the first year get more entrenched in their sleep-wake patterns, and these get more 
established and no two babies are actually the same. We find that about 15 to 35% of young children under the age of five experience some sleep disturbances, but these normally settle by the age of five. And that's why if you have two children, you can bank on seven years of some disturbed sleep with your kids. And then sleep decreases as children get older. So you know, as children start to grow up from five onwards, it goes from about 12 to 13 hours down to about eight to nine hours as teens. And the trick for children is really all about good practices, as I'm sure you all know. So it's about bath time, dim lights and stories, because poor sleep in children is associated for them with increased anxiety, aggression, poor learning, hyperactivity, and also putting on weight. So when we then get to sort of adolescence you've got the onset of puberty and that finishes at adulthood and what we know of an adolescent period is that most of those children need eight to ten hours and obviously it varies from child to child a little bit but the really big thing is there is a natural change in their circadian rhythm which drifts a little later so there's this owl-like behavior where they don't want to go mm-hmm. to bed and they don't want to get up. Mm-hmm. And so this is the shift in their chronotypes, which many of us will, if you've had children or young adults around you, will have experienced. Interestingly, I was talking to some of the anthropologists, and they say that they think that when we were cavemen, this was a time when, if you think about it, we were all hunkered down around the cave. It was safe to children to play around the cave at that stage a little bit later at night. And then in the morning, they could sleep in whilst you know mum got up and started to sort things out, and men and women went hunting and gathering for the day. So perhaps that was fine in those days. But today, it's a little bit of a challenge and the real big challenge is with school but interestingly there are several of the private schools now that are moving to have their academic lessons for the 14 and 15 year olds onwards moving the start of those academic lessons back to start at 10 o'clock as opposed to starting at eight o'clock or nine o'clock and this is because this chronotype drift is reported to be a maximum drift for women at the age of 19 and a half and for men at the age of 21. And then gradually that then reverts and it comes forward again. So this is not laziness. This is just a response to the exposure to testosterone in men and to estrogen in women, to the supercarometric nucleus, which is the sort of the clock in the brain that, that times everything for us. And so that's what we see. And then because as women then go through puberty and start going through to start to have their periods and so forth, they start to expose to both estrogen and progesterone. And estrogen is associated with a much more robust formation of the circadian rhythm. And progesterone is very relaxing and helps induce sleep. And so you can see across a menstrual cycle with the first half of the cycle being estrogen dominant and then the second half of the cycle with a buildup of progesterone. That all sounds fantastic. But premenstrually, it all goes a bit wrong because they both those hormones come tumbling down and many women experience sleep disturbance and circadian rhythm disturbance at the time of the premenses and so that's this premenstrual syndrome and we get a very similar set of circumstances that occur at the time of the menopause and this may explain why you know women's lifetime risk of mood disorders and depression is twice that of men that is fascinating then we've got people over 65 and then it all changes again as we get older <laughs> let me just pick up on perimenopause and menopause because that's a topic that we cover often here and sleep disturbance is such a huge issue and yes. in fact for me I wish I'd recognized it during perimenopause I just thought I was super stressed and I was waking up at four o'clock in the morning and couldn't get back to sleep again yeah. and to be honest the first time I was given some estrogen gel and rubbed it on literally that night I had the best night's sleep I'd had for three or four years and it oestrogen does seem to play such a role doesn't it for, for midlife women when it comes to sleeping better 
Absolutely. So, you know, obviously you've been exposed to oestrogen through all of your reproductive life and even postmenopausally women are exposed to oestrogen, but not so much. And that varies quite a lot from women to women. That's why there's quite a variety of experiences that women talk about around the menopause and the symptoms that they get. But sleep disturbance is one of the huge things that very many women get. Mm. It's partly driven just because of the vasomotor motor differences that they get. You're finding that women have hot flushes and night sweats, which are very, very common, the most common symptom of the menopause. Mm. And obviously, if you're hot that brings you out of sleep as we already discussed before because to go into deep sleep you have to drop your core body temperature well if you're burning hot then they find it very very difficult mm. to sleep so estrogen is one of the things that you absolutely need to do but it's not the only thing and not all women want to take estrogen so there needs to be a spectrum of things that women might consider doing mm. so what's your nutritional advice then so i also find magnesium for example very helpful to take that at bedtime so magnesium, I think, is great because what that's causing is smooth muscle relaxation. And often for many people, they don't get quite enough magnesium in their diet. They don't eat enough nuts and seeds, which is where you might get your magnesium from. So a little bit of extra magnesium can definitely cause that relaxation, which is what we need as we go into sleep. But when we're thinking about the sort of things that that will really matter for women is really getting these habits installed before you're going to go through your menopause. So I think these are habits that in your 20s and 30s, in your working life, they should become just de rigueur, things that you really do, having a regular habit. Because if you look at sort of what Edison said, he said, yeah, well, you know, sleep's a waste of time, I'll sleep when I'm dead. All I know about that is you're going to be dead a whole lot sooner and not enjoy life quite as much. So the things that you can think about getting right are the regular habits, morning exposure and regular exercise. These are hugely important things in terms of setting your clock watching your refined carbohydrate intake particularly in the latter part of the day that evening meal what time do you have your evening meal i mean lots of people don't have their evening meal till nine o'clock yeah. and then they want to go to bed at 10 or 10 30 well they're going to struggle caffeinated drinks a lot of people think they're completely immune to caffeine or don't recognize that there's caffeine in in many of the cold beverages that you might have with a drink and alcohol i think alcohol is a much bigger issue in society in lots of ways than we would like to recognize. And for example, you can measure quite accurately on one of these risk monitors. You can get an indication of what your heart rate variability looks like. So mm -hmm. how relaxed are you? And when you see people who drink just one or two units of alcohol, their heart rate variability goes completely haywire and they're hugely anxious. And that's all caused by alcohol. So alcohol has many effects, but these are things that are absolutely all within our choice. Mm -hmm. We can choose, are we going to eat proper fruits and vegetables and foods cooked from whole foods or are we going to buy something from a takeaway and have that with a couple of bottles of beer or a couple of glasses of wine these are personal choices but getting those choices right means that you'll go into your menopause or your perimenopause in a much better shape because even in the climacteric that period of time where your periods are going to wane and wax a little bit your ovaries don't function completely normally so before their menopause the last menstrual period many women get often five or even ten years of disturbance that occurs before that mm. what we know is women who are fit healthy a normal body weight have not put on extra body mass and so forth and they're cardiovascularly fit get way way less hot flushes and night sweats and mood swings and sleep disorders than those people who've not thought about it mm. and then often they think about it because they have a crisis at the time of their menopause and suddenly they get overwhelmed by all these symptoms and this is a very big reason why we see lots of women leaving the workforce at that stage yeah. and you'll be very aware of this it's a huge problem in society mm. that women don't stay in the workforce and much of that is due to the menopause the menopause is not the time to be tackling this the 20 years prior to the menopause that you go into your menopause in really great shape that's the time to be tackling it mm. 
Interesting that you talk about weight being such a huge factor when it comes to sleep. And is there a correlation between excess weight, for example, and conditions like sleep apnea when we, we can't get to sleep or we wake up? 110%. So if people are overweight, they have a much greater risk of sleep apnea, both men and women. And women tend to, if you look at the statistics, tend to put on about four or five kilos around the time of their climacteric and their menopause. And that extra weight tends to go on as body fat. And for those people who are not aware of what sleep apnea is, this is where they get obstruction of breathing whilst they are sleeping. So what happens is the soft tissues at the back of the, of the throat fold forward and they close the windpipe, the trachea, and effectively people start holding their breath. Well, you and I know that we can probably hold our breath for maybe a minute, or if you're a superstar, maybe you could do it for two, but you can't hold it for very much longer than that. And then you're going to have to wake up and breathe. So what happens is you move violently to move your head and, and allow yourself to breathe. And that brings people out of sleep and it means they become awake. That can happen twice a minute oh my goodness the whole of the time that you're asleep so if people have got sleep apnea one of the problems is they get woken up every other minute or so well can you imagine if someone woke you up every other minute how you'd feel the next day yeah. and many of these people have slept for 10 hours they wake up feeling exhausted and one of their huge risks associated with sleep apnea are work accidents and driving accidents mm. because if you're driving and you haven't had any sleep last night mm. then you're likely to fall asleep have a nap at the wheel and that's a big cause of accidents gosh that is really chilling isn't it and let's just cover off the elderly so going beyond perimenopause and climacteric and menopausal changes. I have many elderly friends, my parents are in their 80s, and I know many of their friends who just say, you know, quite cheerfully, oh, I need so much less sleep now. I only sleep for, you know, three or four hours. And, you know, that's just a thing of age, isn't it? I mean, how true is that? It is true. So as we get older, as sleep changes, our circadian clock, unlike teenagers, which drift later, it tends to drift earlier. So what that means is that they get a desire to want to go to bed earlier. But the strength of the signal for sleeping is not as strong. So they find that they get less REM sleep and less deep sleep. They often wake up feeling slightly more sleepy and groggy and they have a desire to nap through the day. Mm. Now, if you're not working, it's actually not the end of the world. But we see mm -hmm. a reduction in total sleep time, a reduction in REM sleep, increase in the lighter sleep, but less deep sleep. And in that deep sleep, remember, you're doing physical restoration. And one of the ways we think we can counteract that is physical activity. So if you are training it drives more deep sleep. And so that's one way you might think about counteracting it. So exercise is really good, not just for younger people, but for older people. And they have more awakenings in the light. So none of that stuff is good. But these are all things that you can manage and work against. I.e., You can do things in your daytime so that you can manage to get better sleep at night. And if we are going to exercise, hopefully we all are going to do something, move in some way during every day. Is there a good time of day to do that? Should we be working out or going for that extra steep hill walk in the morning as opposed to later in the evening when our bodies are winding down? So I think that's a really good point. It doesn't really matter in lots of ways when you want to exercise within the day, if you consider the day from, say, when you get up at 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning till 5 or 6 o'clock in the evening. I think any time within that sphere that works for you is really useful. Exercising in the morning has that added benefit of 
blue light exposure um, in the early part of the day, which helps really reinforce the normal circadian rhythms that we should all be being guided by. Is that only if you're outside? If you're outside, yes. You get blue light exposure if you're outside. Obviously, if you're doing it in a gym, which is just under fluorescent lighting, that won't occur. But if you exercise later on in the evening, so at eight or at nine o'clock in the evening, that can actually disturb your sleep. And part of the main reason for that is that when you exercise, if you exercise, you've gone for a you know, a five or 10K jog or whatever, you'll notice you get hot and sweaty. And it takes a long time to dissipate that heat Mm. from your body. And that may well interfere with your sleep. So we don't recommend people exercising at eight or nine o'clock in the evening if you want to go to bed at 10 o'clock at night. Interesting. I remember in the early days when it was the craze to go to the gyms and all the fitness classes and mm. you know, it was kind of the yuppie generation in the 80s and there were all the step aerobic classes that were like 8, 8, 30, 9 o'clock at night. And, you know, that was me. I guess we didn't quite know the science behind it as we do now. And I think, you know, if you're playing a squash match at eight o'clock at night, it's not the end of the world, but you just need to recognise, as all the sports people I, I look after, it's very difficult to then go to sleep at 10 o'clock. Mm. What you'll find is that because of the excitement of the game or the exercise that you have been doing, that you're going to be much more awake and that's going to push back the start of your sleep. Now, that's not the end of the world, providing, you know, it's a Friday night or whatever or a Saturday night and you, you're able to sleep in until nine o'clock the following morning. But if you have to get up at six o'clock in the morning, that's going to be a bit more of a challenge. Now, we've been talking about exercise, we've been talking about nutrition and talking about taking supplements is something that I'd just like to sort of finish up on because I know that you're the chief medical officer for Indie Supplements, which is a great British brand. I I know it. I love it. I buy their things. I like them very much. And yet you say that you haven't always been a huge advocate of supplementing the diet. I'm still not a huge advocate. So (laughs) this is why it is quite interesting because they're not trying to sell a thousand different supplements, which I think is really fundamentally not very smart at all. I think that you can get an awful lot from a well-balanced, healthy diet. However, I'm also a realist and having been working in the field for over 20 years, I've rarely met anybody who's got a well-balanced, healthy diet. There is always a challenge. So I think that supplements are not going to be the cure, but they may well be part of the support. And certainly Indy makes a sleep supplement called Rest, and that is a combination of ingredients which promote sleep like Venarium and 5-HTP. And as I said, it's not a cure. Mm. You need to work on your behaviours, but it will certainly help if you're struggling. And I have seen many, many of the patients and the people I look after who are trying to get through a moment of crisis. You know, there's a time when they're trying to establish better habits, but that might take three or six months to do. And in that period of time, some support is really, really useful and way, way better than taking sleeping pills which are addictive and have long-term health consequences yes absolutely well you mentioned valerian there and that's a herb that i'm familiar with making cups of valerian herbal tea 5-htp can we just touch on that for those who aren't familiar with it so 5-HTP is just an amino acid, and this is the amino acid form that's sellable in the UK and in Europe. And what it does is it actually promotes growth hormone release. And growth hormone release, what that does is it encourages deep sleep. You get a really big boost of growth hormone release. The best way of getting a boost of growth hormone release is doing weight-bearing exercise. Mm. So if you go and do body weight type exercises, you'll get a big release of growth hormone, and that stimulates better sleep. And that's the really underpins why exercise is so good at driving good sleep and this is just part of that process it's driving that process for you really fascinating it's just been a really really great chat thank you so much where can we go to find out more information about you and your work so my behavioral change work is at coreperformance.co.uk brilliant 
and indie is indiesupplements.co.uk. Absolutely. Well, I'll make sure we put all those resources and links in the programme notes. Thank you very much. Dr. Adam Carey, thank you. Very fascinating talk to you and uh, to get all your expert advice. Thank you so much again. My pleasure. Well, thank you also to you for listening. And if you are interested in trying any of the Indie Supplements range, I should just mention that we do currently have a 15% discount with Liz Loves. That's all one word, Liz Loves. And that's at IndieSupplements.com. Now, if you can relate to anything that we have talked about, or if you're simply enjoying the podcast and would like to get in touch, you can find me on social media at Me or the team and me at Lizelle Wellbeing. And please do leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. It really does help other people to find us. Well, I'll be back next Friday with another dose of wellness wisdom you can trust. Until then, go well. Bye-bye. The Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, and is a fresh air production with thanks to my producers, Ellie Smith, Sarah Moore and Emma Crampton. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.